Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Carrie, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's been a long time since we last talked, but we're happy to have you back. How have you been? April has been a crazy month. Um, we're done with school here where I am. Here is going to drive me crazy today. But yeah, we're, we're done with um, classes. We're in finals week now. So summer is almost upon me, which is nice. I can't believe it's already at the end of April and we're going into May now. So it's interesting because I feel like I'm missing chunks of my life, but that's okay. They always say it goes quick when you get older. I'm like, I'm sure it does. Yes, it does. Yeah. So we, I invited you on before we even get into the conversation stuff, because we did that last time. We completely got down the track of conversation. Let's talk about professional wrestling. I have to know, how'd you get interested in professional wrestling studies? So it's funny. I never watched it as a kid. I, th I thought when I was younger, I thought it was stupid, you know, um, but my partner, he's been into it since he was a kid and about almost a decade now, really, he started going back to school for his master's and he was telling me about, you know, how professional wrestling is, is a hyper reality, which is a big postmodern term. And that caught my interest. So I started looking into it more, started watching it. And I kind of got hooked from there and from there helped to form this lovely organization, the Professional Wrestling Studies Association. And yeah, it's been my journey, I suppose. Can I ask what your focus would be in that? Like, are you more focused into like the fan side of things and how people react, the age groups or like, I, I have a buddy who's a amateur wrestler. Um, I have a lot more respect for it. I was kind of, it's either like you're a young kid and then you lose it and then you get back into it or you're an adult that's into it because you have a young kid. And I think it's, I have a little bit more respect for the sport only because I know when they do these flips and these jumps. And like I said, my buddy, who's an amateur wrestler, he tells me about like, I mean, it's a, it's a performance, everyone knows, but it's like, you don't know what the nerves are like before you go up there. You don't know what the training is like. You don't know about like the flips you have to do and that. And then I start watching, I'm like, oh my, like, this is very, very interesting. Cause like, I'm very concerned about my back a lot of the time. And I see people always land on their back. And then there's a podcast episode with Ric Flair up on Joe Rogan. And you hear that man's stories and what he's like a cultural significance with just a woo. And it's just like, all right, there's something there to this. Yeah, I, I think to me, it's it's two things I'm most interested in. As a fan, I'm probably most interested in the characters and the storytelling. So when I get an emotional connection to a wrestler, that's where I'm most interested in something. But then as a researcher, I'm most interested in the fan aspect because I, I know about the history of, not even history, it's still continuing this perception of um, professional wrestling fans as these dupes, as stupid, as marks, as people who, you know, they don't know better and in their lower class and everything. But I'm, I'm, I don't see it that way. And I don't know if it's because I'm, I don't want to see myself that way, but I'm really interested in how the fan works with the wrestler to essentially construct that performance and that thing that's called kayfabe. And then by extension, I like to take that idea and understand, uh, uh, well, other aspects of the world and how we create these realities around us. Let's start with your personal favorite of looking at the story and the character. Give me a, a character that you like in the story. Like, I, I didn't really know there was a whole history. Like, I know McMahon's story, I guess. I've played the WWE games. They're always fun to play. But once I start listening to wrestlers and in interviews and I start hearing like the really long kind of this is how this works and this is how this works and this guy decides this and this guy decides that 
I'm like, okay, there's a lot more substance here than just watching like a little bit of a quick 30 minute performance or someone coming on stage with a microphone and nobody ever hitting it and anybody until a chair gets brought out. Um, but this is, there's a lot more story behind it. So give me a character, give me some story. I actually was going to wear his t-shirt today, but I think there's, there were a couple when I first started, like Sami Zayn was one of my first big ones and he's kind of big in the WWE right now, but then I transitioned to Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano. And when they first started out in NXT, they had this amazing story going of, you know, two guys who were best friends who were almost brothers and then the emotional ups and downs. And I hate you. I love you. This really complicated narrative. And I've actually done some research research on it because I found it so fascinating. So those two were my first big ones i would say right now my my main ones are the young bucks and kenny omega and hangman adam page and i keep i have to keep going because there's also eddie kingston and ethan page who i knew first from a local chicago promotion and, and liked them there but once they joined aew and i could see them more regularly that's when I had a stronger emotional connection with them. So there's something about the the regularity of being on television and then through Twitter and YouTube and so forth, being able to connect with them that way too seems to be really at least important for me. And I know it's going to be important for other fans out there or else they wouldn't be doing it. But it's definitely helped to drive a lot of professional wrestlers these days and a lot of wrestling fandom these days. Is it the emotional connection you you mentioned that? Like is that just because you like their personalities? They seem like down to earth guys or they it's that kind of I wouldn't say underdog story but that like brother connection type deal that you mentioned. I mean, I I, I like Ric Flair because he's just very I think everyone likes him. He's the ladies man, he's this what it's just the type that I think every young kid or young boy wants to try and envision themselves in. But I also like macho man, Randy Savage. I mean, the dude in the interviews is the funniest thing I have ever seen, which I know, I don't know if he, I, obviously he's not on drugs or anything, but I mean, he just seems like he was definitely hyping it up for a reason, much like Hulk Hogan started to do. So, I mean, to me, I like that kind of outrageous personality that doesn't fit the norm, you know, boogeyman. I think it, it, his name is the boogeyman was another one during WWE's time that ate worms and he was a favorite of mine. Yeah. He's still around. He doesn't wrestle really much, but usually sometimes every now and then WWE will bring him back for like a guest spot and things like that. Um, but for me, it's, I don't know if, if I would call them down to earth. I mean, maybe Eddie Kingston a little bit more for Eddie Kingston in particular. Um, it wasn't until I, I learned more about his struggles with depression and anxiety that I really started connecting to him more. Um, for Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano, there was just something about how they were able to present themselves that was so counter to what I had seen going on or what you think of as the stereotypical wrestler that connected with me. And I really... I was just really interested then in what it was that they're doing. And, and it might also be because I did also see them here in Chicago. They wrestled in a small federations here. Um, the first live show I ever went to was with AAW 
and he was wrestling bears and I didn't know who he was at the time but I started being able to see them you know live in person and I think that helps to to get a sense as to maybe not necessarily their personality or who they are because that's a whole nother topic if you ever get to that but to have a I think a greater appreciation for the physicality and the performative nature of what it is they're doing, seeing live shows and having them so close to you in smaller and live shows, I think really helps with that type of connection. Are you surprised? Like if, uh, I mean, even with the flips that they do, I know we all like stage and stuff, but those flips are real. I mean, the athleticism, um, coming from my background as a fitness background and I work in a gym and I'm, I, I usually get like, I never really relate to anybody on this, but I watched Creed three and I'm looking at it. My buddy's a personal trainer and he actually, his cousin is friends with Batista. Now I've met Randy Orton. Okay. That's a, I've saved his life. I will put that out there on a podcast. So we live in a, I live in a beach town. He rented a pontoon boat. He goes, I'm going to dive off this. He's a lot shorter in person. I go, if you dive like that, you're going to break your neck. Cause the water's not that deep, but it looks like it is. And he goes, what do you mean? And I just jumped in and I, my knees went straight to my chest and just almost gave me like a knock me out basically. And he goes, Oh, thank you. And I was like, yeah. And then he asked for a good spot to eat. And I pointed in the right direction. So we're watching Creed three, me and my buddy, he's a trainer, like I mentioned. And I'm, he's like, do you see a rip they got for this? And I'm like, thank God someone else is noticing that. Cause whenever I see wrestlers, I just think of that. I'm like, this guy got ripped to get in this position. And I keep thinking it's weird, but it's not, it's normalized. We're okay. And I think part of it is maybe that's another reason I like Eddie Kingston is he doesn't have that type of, of body shape. He definitely has more of a average Joe type body shape. And yet he's still willing to, you know, go out there. He has good cardio he has good physical um, stamina and whatnot. And I know <laughs> it is that idea, of course, you know, predetermined fake storylines it's it's who wins and loses is predetermined whatever but yeah it's it's the athleticism it is the truly putting your body and everything connected like your mental health on the line when you do these types of moves so when i would see whether it is God, the largest show i've been to so far was 16,000 people in attendance and then the smallest show was like maybe 100 or so people in attendance but at all of these shows you you can of course see you know botches and whiffs and you know things not connecting but when you do see the real athleticism come out and then you see the injury that sometimes will accompany that because I have been at those shows where there have legit been injuries accompanying it 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 really helps you to remember yeah maybe the outcome is predetermined but everything getting to that no they're putting their their bodies and as we know from the ones who have unfortunately died in the ring they're putting their lives on the line who's the guy that died in the ring um owen hart is that the dude that tried to do the zip line and fell oh man for a stage entrance as well too that's what's crazy is that like even all that performance aspect of things even the pyrotechnics and things of that sort i mean a lot of risky stuff i mean are you able to tell as a fan like if something's not right like if someone's either obviously if they're going oh like on an injury but then there's something that happens you're like that person actually might have just got hurt like listening to undertaker when he got kicked in the face by ray mysterio and he's talking about it on the podcast he's like yeah broke my orbital and 
he didn't know until like the next day, but he was talking about like, I had this splitting headache. So I just said, Hey man, you got to knock me out real quick so we can end this match and move on to the thing. I'm like, yeah, you don't realize it. And because I mean, everything looks like once you think it's a performance, you know, it's a performance. You just start thinking a lot of this could be performance related and the materials even they use to hit people with. I mean, they're not maybe a hundred percent what they are, but they are something that is hitting somebody like Ric Flair says, easiest spot, take a shot, hit me right in the forehead. It's not going to hurt. Just hit me in the forehead. I mean, you have like, there was this one chair shot that Cody Rhodes took from Sean Spears where Cody, and it was a gimmicked chair. So it was definitely, you know, a steel chair, but it was thinner. It was, it was meant to not be as, as strong, but Cody told Sean, Hey, yeah, you know, swing for the fences, just have at it. And he, Sean Spears did and cut Cody right open. Um, which they acknowledged afterwards. Yeah, probably Cody shouldn't have said that to Sean Spears. But you, sometimes when you're watching, um, like I think that there was an ROH show recently where it was a, a battle ro- tag team battle royale and or no tag team ladder match. Sorry, and one of the guys took a nasty spot through some tables and landed wrong. And you saw it in a split second on the camera how wrong the landing was, but they quickly cut to a different camera so that you couldn't see anything else and they didn't show him again. So sometimes, depending on what's going on, the company, the promotion will do everything they can to hide that. Um, I was at Forbidden Door this past summer when Adam Cole was seriously injured and that um, an injury that put him out for like uh, several months. Cause I think he got a, a really bad concussion. And at that point, the match, you know, it was just going back and forth. It was four guys. They were just doing their thing. And the match ended very quickly after Adam Cole took a bad hit bump. Um, so, you know, at that point, Oh, something's not right here. The, the energy, the, the rhythm is disrupted at that point. So yeah, sometimes I think you can tell, other times you are left wondering um, just how much of it is a sell. And I think sometimes it's not helped by the fact that you even have the promotion or the wrestler, even afterwards when they are legit injured, potentially still selling it. So that blurring of the line between what's factual and what's fictional is a tricky one. But I think to a lot of fans, that's also what it makes them interested in professional wrestling is trying to figure out what's the real and what's the fictional. Did it surprise you that when you started the professional wrestling studies association, that a lot of people were interested researcher wise um, into studying professional, it's a cultural significance. I mean, it's lasted this long, my, my childhood, childhood before me, my parents' childhood. So it's like you have something that is still here and active. So it is something that, I mean, part of the media entertainment, I mean, it's a, everyone knows what the WWE is. Everyone knows Hulk Hogan is. Everyone knows who Ric Flair is. They're just names now that have been synonymous with a sport. Yeah, and The Rock or John Cena are the newest ones for that. I think movies when I think of The Rock, sadly. <laughs> well, still, though, I mean, he still sometimes pops up in WWE, and John Cena was just in WrestleMania, so. But the... The fact that for us, what really helped to spur it, um, the creation of the PWSA, was the 2016 presidential election. And this is kind of what we said, because we came out 
we, we formed really in like 2017. And so when people started talking, asking us, well, why, why are you doing this? We said, well, because the president of the United States is in the WWE Hall of Fame. There's a lot of overlap between how Trump would communicate with how wrestlers would communicate. And there's a lot of, of overlap there. So I was actually kind of more shocked that there wasn't more of a study of professional wrestling. Um, the fact that I could find a lot of stuff that had been published even more recently, not looking at the negative aspects so much of professional wrestling. There's been a lot of stuff published and going all the way back to Roland Barthes mythologies in the 1950s. And the fact that no one had really tried to bring people together to talk about this is, I think, what surprised me the most. Why do you think that was, though? I mean, do you think – I mean, everything's kind of a show, though. Politics is a show. A lot of this is a show. I'm sure you can find strong correlations kind of everywhere, so you can't really throw shade at wrestling for saying like, oh, it's a show. We know it's fake. It's like, well, how much of the stuff do we see? I mean, if we talk about Trump's personality, I'm like, how much is that 100% the guy as well, too? I don't feel like he's doing that at home, but he did it into politics for the first time, and if you could see a correlation even with wrestling in the way that he acted, I mean, is that going to be a new standard of things as well, too? Or are you going to be able to do some foreshadowing? Well, and I think part of the reason is that the idea of who is the wrestling fan was based on that stereotype. It's, it's the dupe. It's the kind of the country bumpkin idea is that those are the people who like wrestling. Those are not the people that we care enough to study and to understand really, or, you know, it's, it's such a low art form that we're not going to try to elevate it up through scholarship. But as the study of popular culture and fans has gotten stronger and more legitimized, there's definitely the case then that professional wrestling needs that same type of, of legitimization. Um, I also think that with social media being at the point where it is right now, more and more people are understanding that fact of what you just said, that it's hard to know where a person's authentic self ends and their performance begins. So I think we're at this interesting point in time where we're having a better understanding about, well, what is truth? What is fact? What is objective? What is reality? What are all these things? And there's a lot of questioning about it. And I think it's a lot of the tensions going on in at least the United States at this time too, trying to work through traditional ideas about reality and authenticity and genuineness and truth with the big T versus more postmodern contemporary ideas about plurality and multiculturalism and, and all of these different ideas about what is good and bad and truthful and honest and whatnot. I think people want the story. People want the fake. People want the show. People want all that type of stuff. Like I like to think I'm being 100% authentic. Um, I don't know. I have no clue. I don't think anyone can really know because it's how do you ever truly know yourself? It's we, we don't on the one hand, we don't don't have the time to do that. It takes a lot of time to do that type of self-reflection. And especially in the United States, if you're in the working class and you're just, you know, hustling to make a living, you don't have the time for that type of introspection. But there's also that idea of like, yeah, we all like the stories. 
And I think that's just been kind of fundamental to humanity from the beginning. The idea of we've always kind of used stories and mythologies to help us make sense of, you know, this thing that we all exist in. And I'm not one of those people who says there's no physical thing here. Like I acknowledge there's all this physical stuff around me. I'm not going to go beyond that. But all of my understanding of this physical stuff is just based on my senses, based on how I interpret things and how I perceive and so on and so forth. And then how am I supposed to explain my interpretations, how I'm perceiving something to someone else? Story tends to be one of the primary ways that we do it. And we perhaps have always done it. You think it's because like, even with the, if we talk about professional wrestling, the, the stories that get created with those characters, do you think it's something that it's, it's much like, I wouldn't say a bedtime story or anything like that, but it's related to that storytelling that is so popular in our culture. Not even from like the, you don't have to take it as back as the ancient days, but you could take it back to just, I mean, stories by a campfire as well too. I mean, we have many folklore type stories of somebody either beating a steam press or something like that on a railroad, or we're just rooting for something and something that we can connect to. The interesting thing is when you take it to something like wrestling, your guy is either good or bad, depending on the match. I mean, it really depends on the aspect of it. So it's like at one point you will be supporting a hero, but then the next day you could be supporting in a villain in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, that idea of, of good versus evil, at least in a Western context, has been primary to how we tell stories for a very long time. And again, Roland Barthes, when he was looking at professional wrestling back in the 1950s, he kind of set that foundation for thinking about these archetypes that exist in our culture and how professional wrestling is just tapping into those same archetypes of the villain and the hero, the face and the heel and that type of idea. What's When was the peak time, in your opinion, for wrestling? I don't know if there was just one peak time. It seems to kind of go in multiple peaks. Um there are people who work behind the scenes who say that, you know, it's a cyclical nature. And part of it is that because like you were saying, you have people who might be fans when they're kids, then they kind of fall out for a little bit, but then they might come back when they're adults, but then they might fall out again. So it's the circular nature, which to the promoters, that means that if they wait long enough, they can basically tell the same story because the people who knew the story up here are no longer watching. So I think if we look at history that way, at least going as far back as the 1940s, 50s, when it started to be televised, we definitely saw the 50s as a height. Then it kind of goes down and kind of come back up in the 70s, goes down a little bit, comes back a little bit in the 1980s when you start especially when you get WrestleMania started, then it starts to go down. Then it comes back up in the late 1990s with the Attitude Era, then it goes back down. And then now it's kind of went back up and then it went back down. And I would say it's kind of back up at this point. In terms of when it was at its height, I would say probably of all of those cycles, definitely with Hulk Hogan, uh, Roddy Piper, all of those folks at the WWF, because that formation of the WWF WrestleMania, what Vince McMahon was able to accomplish and trying to essentially mainstream professional wrestling, I think that had 
the largest presence for professional wrestling in, in popular culture. You think it's affected by UFC at all? I think that's going to be an interesting thing. Okay, so on the one hand, yes, because we definitely see, um, for one thing, we definitely see professional wrestlers bringing in UFC moves or even going and fighting in the UFC and bringing back those accolades to professional wrestling. And now that WWE and the UFC are the same company, it'll be interesting to see just how much further they influence one another in that regard. Because a part of the UFC and mixed martial arts in general was all this idea of, you know, it's, it's the real type of essentially what wrestling is supposed to be. Um, the extent to which that will impact what we see in professional wrestling, I think is going to be interesting. What I do notice is although everyone knows about kayfabe, except for maybe, you know, kids or other individuals, when you watch like behind the scenes documentaries, reality shows, or even vlogs, such as AEW's All Access, all, a lot of professional wrestlers have vlogs. They, they talk about kayfabe and they will talk about, you know, the stuff that goes on into the production, but they always still present the matches as if they're real, as if they're not predetermined. Like they'll talk about the booking of them, but they won't talk about booking the ending of them which I find very fascinating. And to me, I think part of that is this idea to bring in not just UFC, but even New Japan Pro Wrestling and their approach to the, the fictionality of it as well. So you don't just study American wrestling, you study other countries as well too? To an extent. I mean, part of it nowadays is that you kind of have to be familiar with at least the, I would say the four main schools because you have American, you have Lucha Libre in Mexico, you have uh, Puro Resu in, in Japan, and then you have Strong Style coming out of Great Britain. Those are kind of like the four main areas. And the, the reason you have to know about them is how much wrestlers from those various areas have come into the larger promotions and they've kind of influenced one another so that it's not just one form of professional wrestling on display anymore. It's kind of like this mixed professional wrestling. Well, I mean, I, I would have to probably the Mexican Lucha Libre, whatever, whichever one you said, I can't, I don't, I don't want to mispronounce the name or anything, but that one sounds more interesting to me. I don't know. I guess it's because of the, I hate to say it, the costumes. Um, I like the costume ideas. I mean, that's why I like Rey Mysterio was he wore a mask and it kind of seemed like the significance was he can't take off his mask. I mean, Unger, Undertaker had his thing about being kind of like when he rised up after being knocked down, it was like a corpse rising up or a vampire rising up out of a coffin. I mean, they had these designs. A lot of to, a lot of it's the flair. Like I said, it for me, it's the flair type aspect of things. I like it when it's more of a show than it necessarily just actual fighting and things of that sort. I do respect the athleticism. But if you ever listen to Ric Flair talk about, like I said, I'll, I'll send you that podcast episode. It's a good episode. But when he talks about going to North Korea and he was like a young kid and every and this is when tensions were high over there and everyone's telling him, don't go, don't go. Every rec wrestler was recommending don't go. And he goes there wrestles and everything like that has to lose he says but his whole thing was shouting america america 
when they escorted him out because security had to watch him, he ended up saying something, and I guess it was offensive to them, and they kept him like an extra eight days. And then he finally flew back, missed his flight, had to book another one. And he's talking about that experience. I'm like, yeah, nobody knows what you guys really go through behind the scenes of setting things up, not just about match booking or anything of that sort, but just, I mean, the experience that how a fan cannot disassociate the way that they view you in the ring compared to you on the street is a giant fear for me. Well, that's like a lot of other celebrities and actors face that as well, too. You'll have people who are approached on the street trying to go about their everyday lives and they'll be approached as if they're a particular character that they've been playing. I know uh, Pedro Pascal recently has talked about how he'll be asked, like if a mother or father or whatever has their young child with them, he's asked, well, can you do the Mandalorian voice? Can you do the Mando voice? And he's like, yeah, that's not really a voice that you should be doing to a child in public because it kind of sounds, you know, not exactly pleasant or proper. So we we kind of have these ideas because we have expectations for what people are going to be based on the limited knowledge that we have of them. And that limited knowledge is potentially just based on the characters that they play with professional wrestlers, especially in when Hayfabe was truly kept intact. And the professional wrestlers had to stay essentially in character out in public. That was even more dangerous then because then you potentially had fans who, well, they would go up to the professional wrestler as if that professional wrestler is the heel that the fan actually hates and bar fights and other nasty things where it would ensue. And there was no real way for the wrestler to counter that because they were expected to remain in character. Do you ever look at the long, I guess, impacts on wrestlers, like from early wrestlers, like looking at Hulk Hogan or looking at somebody like Ric Flair? I mean, he talks about cutting his forehead all the time. Surprisingly, that guy has no long-term impacts on his health. I think he had a heart issue in like 2017 or something, um, which, no, it was like intestinal blockage. And then he was in a coma for like 31 days, but that was not, that was just from boozing and doing stuff of that sort. But he has no injuries from wrestling, which I'm like very surprised that like, there's not people with like long-term impacts to their health. I mean, Undertaker's got the worst stories. Yeah. I mean, you look at Ric Flair, he know, I think as much as I'm not exactly happy with his womanizing old ways, I think he was smart in the way that how he conducted himself in the ring. He, he didn't do, and a lot of the older guys, they didn't have the same um, athleticism, the, the taking the same types of risks with their bodies that you see a lot of younger kids do these days. Um, but you, what you do see is more of the alcohol abuse and the drug abuse. And you have then instances like Jake the Snake Roberts and the way that DDP had to be able to kind of like pull him back from the brink. Um, you have people like um, um, Pillman and the suicidality behaviors that he had for a long time. And of course, you have Chris Benoit and everything that happened to his brain and the chronic encephalitis that he had. So there are definitely instances out there where the physical toll was high. And because of the boys club that was going on in the locker room, they were basically in, in, engaging in the, you know, tough it out, just stick it out, man up, that type of, 
of idea instead of going and getting the actual help that they should have been getting both physically and mentally. And I think that has changed not completely. There are definitely still people out there that Kenny Omega was a recent example of this. They were kind of toughing it up, it up far longer than they should have. There's much more attention, I think now to making certain that if someone is legit injured, they need to spend the time and recover rather than, you know, just take some painkillers and go back out there. Um, But unfortunately we have instances like Cody Rhodes, when he went back to the WWE and he had a torn pec muscle and you could see one of the nastiest looking things. If you ever want to go find a picture of it, it's horrible. He tore his pec muscle and then he legit still wrestled with it as a torn muscle. He was toughing it up. He should not have been doing that. That was not a good thing because then it just got worse. And then he had months and months off of air because he had to legit recover. So I I hope that now we have more attention being paid to the injuries and the mental health implications for them. Um, but then at the on top of that, you have people doing the more high-risk type of flying maneuvers or death matches that can have much more serious impacts on your body than the type of um, Southern wrestling that, well, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, and other folks came up on. Who do you think was the worst in your perspective of just sending a message when it comes to the way that they wrestled. I would have said Stone Cold Steve Austin. I like him. I think he's a good wrestler, but I think the beer stuff is like a very bad thing, especially when you're at like a kid's show. Whether the beer's fake or not, and you're just pounding beers to pound beers, I don't know, but I think it sends a bad message. I watched a kid with like Down syndrome who was in a pool with two beer bottles and tried to copy it, and he smashed it, and glass went all into the pool. Everyone's like, no, and then he's like, stay still, don't move, and I'm like, how many kids are either replicating, jumping off of a trampoline into something sharp? I mean, there's a guy, I forgot what his name is. He does it on YouTube. But he puts like cactuses, barbered wire and all this. And he says something, takes his shirt off, goes whoop, whoop, and jumps right on it. And just he, his whole YouTube channel is filled with stuff like that. Where I'm like, okay, he's a little bit off, maybe a little bit weird. But you look at him and you just kind of go, this kind of sucks because it's much like when superheroes came out in the beginning. Everyone was like jumping off the roof trying to be a superhero. It's like there is an impact that these wrestlers are sending, whether it's a womanizing one, whether it's this display of eating bugs and things of this sort. But then there's the alcohol thing, which is like an actual real problem that I think a lot of people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Or even the, the painkillers and how that can lead to opioid and fentanyl addiction. Um one of the things is the, the WWE and all of them, of course, have disclaimers, you know, don't try this at home and whatnot. But then you look at wrestlers that are younger and are making a big push. Just so I'm not a hypocrite, I just vape. So I was kind of, I'm a hypocrite, sorry. Um, I think about like the Young Bucks and how they started out in the backyard. Um, Sammy Guevara started out in the backyard, but so did Mick Foley. They started out, you know, doing these types of, of stunts that they would become famous for when they actually became wrestlers. But then that kind of sends that mixed message to these kids saying, hey, yeah, you know, go do this. And, you know, you could potentially become a professional wrestler like your, your heroes. Um, 
I think in terms of the ones that I would be worried about having a kid look up to today, definitely Nick Gage. I think on the one hand, I he's great in terms of like support for trans rights and things like that. On the other hand, the amount of damage he's done to himself and to others, not exactly something to emulate, not something I'd want a kid to watch. Um, Joey Janela would be another one. Darby Allen. I think Darby Allen in AEW is one I'm worried about because I see a lot of kids who, you know, do the same type of face paint that he does. And I, that means they are looking up to him. And I'm just like, this kid is going to kill himself in the ring. And I don't, I don't know what those parents are saying to their kids, but I hope the parents are having very strong conversations with those kids about, yeah, maybe you can like his perseverance, but don't emulate what this kid does. Cause he, he takes risks like willingly being thrown down the cement stairs at Jake at the like um, Jaguars field or whatever. Just don't do those types of things, kid. Like the other stuff, but don't try to kill yourself. And there are definitely still people out there who are engaging in behaviors that should not be emulated. It would be interesting to see if you could find a statistic of the number of injuries that happened to either kids or adults from replicating wrestling moves. I broke my Game Boy doing a wrestling move when I was a kid, tried to jump off of a couch and do a pile driver and on a blanket with I thought was a pillow under there and it was my Game Boy completely cracked the screen it was a sick pile driver though I'll tell you that much <laughs> but that's i mean it's a big thing whenever there's a trampoline it's always wrestling moves and i my cousin's super obsessed with it. he's only a couple months younger than i am um for me it wasn't i kind of just like would like play the game but then i would just kind of move on but i always thought it was interesting that a wrestler could break the stardom of being a superstar in the wwe or something and then go to make a movie or something like that. Like I know they were pitching it at first, like, hey, he's going to be in this movie. But then people were making that their whole thing. Like as much as we talk about like Brock Lesnar going to the UFC, and I'm sure that was like a ploy to try and get UFC fans and WWE fans to go to each other's matches as well too, which I definitely think happened. But the movie stuff, I mean, I still – The Rock is The Rock to me, but also I know he's a wrestler. John Cena's still John Cena, but he's playing in a whole new – I mean, I consider him more of an actor now than anything because I've seen him in so much. But breaking that stardom, usually people know you from someone else, their first impression. There's a story about Will Smith, and as he was doing The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, a guy said, what do you want your name to be? And he says – what do you mean? He goes, well, your name is going to be what people are going to know you for the rest of your life. So whatever you are in this, this is going to be that. And he goes, well, call me Will Smith. I want people to call me Will Smith. I mean, you don't know Alfonso as Alfonso, you know, him as Carlton. So you look at stuff like that. I mean, their first impact being on WWE, that's where they got their start. The Miz tried it. He failed. I, w I mean, I wouldn't say failed. He still did a couple good movies, but he never really stuck with it enough. I think now he does like more reality television and sport type American Ninja Warrior stuff. Um, but it's that translation. I'm like, is that an age out thing possibly? Or is it just a way of hitting a new market because you realize that people like your look, people like your style? Well, part of it is also especially if you look at like American action movies, you go back to like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and you have the big bodies. And one of the things with WWE, McMahon is famous for liking his wrestlers to be these bigger muscular bodies. So if you're Hollywood and you're looking for, you know, the next big muscular body who could be the tentpole for a franchise, wrestling makes a lot of sense there. 
Um, I think where Dwayne Johnson and John Cena are different is that their sense of humor, I think, is a little bit more nuanced. Um, well, The Rock's PC kind of more, uh, I would say, base, not basic, but he's more PG friendly. That's the term, PG friendly. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, if you look at like um, CIA or Jumanji, he he definitely he doesn't have to go to the the extreme levels and still be, you know, very action. I, I think part of it is because he developed that character work in the WWE and his whole idea of like the the shtick with his eyebrow, the people's eyebrow or whatever. That is is yeah, exactly. I can't do it. It's my smolder <laughs> look. I can only do it my the left smolder one. look. Yes. Eyebrow goes I remember high, I was living with my cousin in Los Angeles um, around the time that I think the Scorpion King came out and she was just in love with the rock. And I'm like, why? There's nothing to this guy. He's just this big muscle guy, which apparently that is never my type. Um, so there's, there's something about that smolder. So it's, it's not just attractive to men and it's, it's attractive to women. It's, so I, I think he was able to transition. Well, John Cena had a little bit of a bumpiness, but I think Peacemaker has really helped him to have a, so a more solid footing. And again, that's the action with the humor. He seems to be good with the deadpan humor and finding that niche. People like John Moxley, The Miz, Roman Reigns. One of the things that is interesting is how much the WWE tried to also produce a lot of movies for the wrestlers. So not just send the wrestlers out to Hollywood for whatever Hollywood wants to do, but essentially to become the movie studio themselves. So you look at like the Marine that had the Miz and John Moxley, a whole series of, of these movies. Those are WWE movies. They're produced by WWE. Um, the, th I think that doesn't work as well. Because there isn't enough in, I think, The Miz in particular, and at least Dean Ambrose as John Moxley was being presented back then to connect with the mainstream audience. Um, and again, it took Cena years to be able to do it. And even then, I'm not sure it's mainstream. It's definitely still niche for where he's connecting. Well, he tackled the American military approach in the beginning, and then I now I see him. He does he doesn't really flaunt that as much anymore. He also, I think, his smart move was the the Amy Schumer movie. I don't remember the, the name of it again. Oh, uh, Trainwreck. Yeah, Trainwreck. I I'm think not a Schumer was, fan at all. I I didn't like the movie, but I think it was clever for Cena because again, it was it allowed him to showcase his comedy chops, which I think he's got pretty good comedy chops, which then when you combine that with his physique, it allows for different types of movies and it also allows him to take on the roles that we see more when it comes to Hollywood action movie these days cuz they're not like the taking themselves as seriously as um, Stallone or um, Schwarzenegger movies in the 1980s. They're much more tongue-in-cheek action comedies these days. He found his drawing line when he did the Fred movie. Um, once he did that, everyone gave him so much crap for being a part of that kid's just internet. He played the dad, and he really tried to keep the John Cena personality going, and it really didn't work out so well. But what was interesting to me was Vince McMahon's impact 
onto so much. I mean, I didn't notice how much of an impact he really had till hearing Ric Flair talk about it. But when John Cena made that statement about that, his Fast and Furious movie that he was in was going to, Taiwan was going to be the first country to ever see that movie. And China ban was going to ban Fast and Furious, was going to do so much because he recognized Taiwan as a country. And he did fluent Mandarin and said an apology. And when I saw, I go, where did he learn that? Well, Vince McMahon taught him that he should study up on Mandarin or something like that if he was going to get sent overseas. And he did. And that's the thing for also, he's going from superstar to actor and then realizing the impact of actor where he's accepting so much and then kind of pulling himself back after the Fred stuff, which I noticed. But he also was so close to the social media personality of being a wrestler. Like, hey, guys, you know, you're going to be able to see this and hyping it up like that, like how you would do a fight. And it, landed bad and now i'm starting to see like he went away for a little while um a couple months after that which i think was good advice someone must have gave him but then he started coming back and now he's coming back in a series he's coming back in movies now and it's interesting to see like now i, I see a different john cena than i saw before he went away and then also before he was in the wwe yeah yeah i think you're you're onto something there um i i remember because the first when i first started watching wrestling it was wwe stuff and I remember watching Cena and being like, this character is bad and I don't like him as a wrestler. Um, and it was kind of similar to Roman Reigns. I'm still not terribly a Roman Reigns fan, but knowing more about how much I know is genuine, but knowing more about the person behind that character made me like them more. And I think that's also important if you're going to become a celebrity, not just an actor, not just a superstar, but a full out celebrity, you need to be able to connect with the audience outside of the fictional world of you know, the kayfabe wrestling or the movie or whatever it is you're doing. And I think Cena had to learn that. I'm not sure. I, I'd have to go back and look at The Rock because The Rock kind of he came up before social media. He was a jerk, though, in the beginning. Yeah. So I, I think they both kind of had to, to learn how to engage with people more. Um, he just accepted the Disney check, I feel like. I mean, I feel like um, John Cena did a little more of the DC stuff, but uh, his The Rock just completely switched over from doing – even when he's in like a, a aggressive comedy, his whole personality is kind of being the funny PG, like, oh, that's cool. Like I hear him say maybe a curse word every now and again, but it's very, very rare. And I, I know some people attribute that to, oh, it's his kid. And it's like, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's he's just realizing that he has a bigger market for being the nice guy or being in a movie that's like kind of like clean comedy is. I mean, it's a hard thing to do, but there's definitely a market for clean comedy when people want to go take the family out. And yet it's interesting because I'm trying to remember like in Black Adam, which I thought was a really fun movie. It was, it was definitely darker than like... It. I'd like, I thought it was, I got to get it on, on disc. There's so many people that are like, it's horrible. I'm like, I don't know what you guys, it was fast paced hundred percent, but that first time nobody's asking questions. They're just punching stuff. Thank God. Yeah. It was a lot better than justice league or man of steel or dawn. Of justice. Yeah. But Henry Calvell is just hyped up too much. I don't see the appeal in that guy. Yeah. I, well, I kind of wish Brandon Routh had been given a little bit more of a chance, but yeah. It was still Christopher Reeve's shadow and it needed to be broken, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think when you're younger, especially when you're coming out of like such a hyper masculine world as professional wrestling, 
you're probably have this, these expectations put on you that you have to perform in those types of very hyper-masculine movies too, where you're very violent and you're swearing and so on and so forth. But if you want to have that broader reach, you need to be able to, like you say, kind of go into the, the more broad range comedy type of things, even though like, trying to think of, it's interesting then because with Cena, Peacemaker, I would say, is definitely not that, either in the Suicide Squad or the HBO series. I don't think Cena's marketing for the kids, though. I think he's going for more of those adults that get that. I mean, that, that fits his personality 100%. I think that the whole military thing was – it was way too – America, which I think it's kind of like doing ASMR, for instance, if you start an ASMR channel, you'll get a lot of hits real quick and you'll keep those hits, but there's no growth. There's no, what else are you going to do? Eat different foods. That's okay. But you're still in lump, like, try producing a movie, try talking about this, try doing anything that has maybe substance to it. You're going to lose your audience at that point. Which is interesting then, because I might be that if you look at Bumblebee, that might be where you start to see Cena making that transition because he was military in Bumblebee, but that was definitely a family-friendly movie. And there was the one about firefighters he did as well. That was kind of like a transition point too. Ooh, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't remember. That's going to kill me. Nope, that's going to kill me. I got to remember that at some point. It'll come to me at some point. Um, What about the fans though? I mean, I've heard experiences from people where it's just like, looking for a father figure or a masculine figure to kind of look up at, which I think is important. Um, but I mean, the audiences, like what was some kind of shockers for you looking into the research, at least doing research on them and just looking in like they're normal people, obviously they're not just the stereotypical ones that people like to assume. Oh yeah. I mean, for me, when I started going to the live shows, what I found fascinating was how much overlap I saw between those fans and the fans I would see at a sci-fi fantasy convention. That's what started to shock me already. It's just, it's just that idea of, of like the sci-fi nerds and geeks also being into professional wrestling, which if I look back at my history, the guys I would D&D with in high school, they were also professional wrestling fans. So I think I should have seen that coming, but it, there's that overlap that I found really interesting there. Something about the larger than life characters and the story, but it's also... A lot of the fans, I'm going to guess, are also looking up to people being able to do things physically that they can't do, too. So there's that kind of idea, and my partner has talked about it, as looking up at professional wrestlers as real-life superheroes and being able to accomplish things that us normal people never can. So it's there's those aspects of fans that I find really fascinating. Then there's the see how i want to put it the people that want to be part of the show those people are interesting um they're I definitely saw a the dude fans. slap somebody i was like i don't think that was um scripted at all i think that guy is really pissed off at that fan yeah i mean sometimes some fans are trying to get themselves over more than they are trying to essentially what a fan's job is to help get the wrestler over to help with the storytelling that's going on it's kind of like this idea that when we when we are in a play or when we're playing a game, we have these roles we have to fulfill. And a live audience is there to help the wrestlers 
tell their story, to help confirm who's the heel, who's the face, and to bring the emotion that's necessary and all of this. So when fans don't fulfill that role, it it can be kind of glaring. And I've been at live shows in smaller venues where the fans aren't paying any attention. They're just, you know, all this chattering going on. You can tell the wrestlers are getting mad at this. And one time at the end of a match, one of the wrestlers just basically started scolding the audience for not paying attention to what was going on. And of course, there are the stories, especially from WWE, of the beach ball, the CM Punk chants. Um, God, there was a match with Seth Rollins, and I forget who he, I think it was Randy Orton, but he was taking on someone. And the fans just did not care at all what was happening. And they were just doing chants that had nothing to do with what was going on in the match. And you could see how upset the wrestlers were getting. Those types of fans, I think, might be acting more on what we would call the smart approach. Because there's the idea that you have smarts who know all about the kayfabe. They know all about what's going on behind the scenes. And they're kind of, to Vince McMahon at least, they're the bad fans. They're the internet fans. They're the ones we don't want. And then you have the marks who are the ones who traditionally coming out of carny talk, they're the ones who are duped, who are, who are easily convinced and conned into what is going on. And I think a majority of fans operate more in like the middle ground as smarks where, you know, they have the knowledge, but then they also have that emotional connection so that they will get into a match. But then the problem is they might just get into a match and it might just be because of a wrestler. So all of the other matches on the card, all of the other wrestlers, they might not care about whatsoever. And they might then, you know, try to get themselves over or I've been in, in situations in live crowds where uh, this one guy was shouting anti-Semitic stuff at a wrestler. And I kind of, turned around and I almost got into a fight with them. I was getting so mad or they'll shout things just to get a rise um, out of the fans around them. So they're being disruptive in some way because hear they're one person screams, you suck. And then the guy go, Hey man, that's not nice. And then, sorry, didn't think you were going to respond. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's this, and I think that's, what's fascinating to me about the smaller shows. The first one I ever went to, there was a match with Ethan page and I think it was Eddie Kingston and, and someone else where one of the fans shouted, Hey, Ethan, how's your cardio? To which Ethan then stops the entire match, turns to the guy and says, how's my cardio? And he essentially pulls down his pants, moons the guy, starts doing jumping jacks and wrestling moves with his butt hanging out and then checks his cardio and gives the guy a big thumbs up. And then they get on with the match again. That type of interactivity I love because I think that's, that's like one of the most purest forms of audience engagement you can get out there. It's like very rare in other types of Western entertainment. But that's like, I think, a good example because there are far more bad examples, um, such as Cesaro and the WWE going into the crowd, taking the beach ball and just ripping it apart because he was getting so upset by how much fans were paying attention to the beach ball and not what was going on in the ring. This is not a Nickelback concert. Get rid of the beach ball. 
I guess when it comes to the divisions in the fandom, I mean, is that something that you learned? Like there's, I didn't know that. I mean, there's splits in the JFK community, which is the thing somebody needs to get interested in and study that community because good God. But there's a lot of things that I start to notice. Like you mentioned the different types of fans. I mean, there has to be a giant splits between fans against certain superstars or whoever, but there's also different types of people about even like you mentioned, somebody shouting anti-Semitic stuff and then you're getting upset. I mean, it's hard because you have a probably a different variety of personalities involved in one room, um, which always happens, especially if you're talking about 16,000 people. I mean, not every single person is going to be into that, which is different than concerts, surprisingly. Like if you look at like the Metallica family is another fandom community that's like the most positive that you wouldn't expect. But everyone's there to see Metallica. They all enjoy Metallica. They mosh pit, and it's not a sense of anger. It's a sense of like, this is just fun. We're just having fun. People care about you. They want you to experience something as well too. But there's not a whole lot of division. But you get into something where everyone has their individual person that they look up to. It's kind of a lot like politics. I mean, you end up having your fan or whoever you're supporting and someone says, well, actually that guy sucks and my guy's actually better. The next thing you know, you have a bunch of people starting a fist fight out in the parking lot. Little Timmy, hold the camera. Exactly. And it's it's kind of why I talk about politics as fandom, because especially when you have your fandom become so central to how you think about yourself, you can become very defensive very easily. And when you then, especially at live shows, add alcohol to the mix, that's where fights will break out. And they have and it's, it's not terribly common, but it, I have been at least at one show, a large show. I think this was Forbidden Door, where moxley was wrestling oh, i'm gonna say it was okada but all of a sudden there was commotion off to the side and we see that there are some fans fighting and security trying to get the people out of there and so the fans start paying attention to what's going on up in the stands and moxley and the guy in the ring are like wait what's going on and it kind of disrupts things that way so you have it between you know wrestlers and, and their fans you have it between promotions there's a lot of feuding going on right now between WWE diehards and AEW diehards. And it's, it's kind of like two nations sometimes at war with one another. And there's even the idea of, um, and there's an academic concept called the imaginary nation where essentially it's talking about that idea of how you can have that loyalty that resembles patriotism and jingoism and so forth. And I've even seen it with, you have it between types of wrestling so for example one of the big stars right now is orange cassidy and he has a very particular type of wrestling that a lot of people who prefer traditional types of wrestling hate and then you have people who think that cinematic matches where it doesn't happen in a ring it's not live those aren't true wrestling and I even have arguments with one of my fellow scholars on that because he thinks cinematic wrestling is not wrestling. So there's a lot of different ways in which a person's personal preferences can come in and cause problems. Now, it doesn't mean that it has to cause problems. My colleague and I, we can have these discussions. But especially when you then bring in very intense emotions that connect the person's ego and identity to that fandom. And then you add in either the anonymity of online or the anonymity of inebriation, then it can become very problematic. 
Now, are there any theories that you guys have developed or you've developed personally about some type of the professional wrestling? Well, a lot of the theory work when it comes to professional wrestling focuses on kayfabe and trying to understand how kayfabe works. Um, beyond that, there might be, you know, the theories that come out of rhetoric and semiotics and um, folklore even, and looking at how the mythology is created. Then there's also people who look at professional wrestling from a theater studies perspective and understanding the staging and the crafting and the, the essentially the same concepts that you would see apply to any type of theatrical production apply to professional wrestling as well. And from at least your research and your perspective from starting this to where you're at now, I mean, did you, did you have anything that you still have questions about? I mean, not, besides kayfabe, but is there anything that I guess you have anything that you've noticed that you're curious of looking into? Well, I'm hoping to get an updated questionnaire going to try to give us a better sense as to what types of fans are out there right now. And for me, I really want to see how the politics expressed by wrestlers and their promotions, how that interacts with the fans' own personal politics. That to me is something interesting, especially when we compare WWE and AEW. Um, I wanna see if political ideologies and preferences are impacting how people engage with professional wrestling. Can I ask what's one really bad thing that you saw, or maybe besides like the anti-Semitic stuff you heard at that thing, but you ever had like a bad thing you came across in your research or something that was, I don't know, maybe not necessarily evil or bad, but just kind of taking you back a little bit. For me, I, like I said, I started with WWE and I was watching NXT. I loved NXT, but when the pandemic started and then McMahon fired and let go of so many professional wrestlers when they, they needed job security more than ever. That's to me, the height of, of evil, I think is, is when, when a promoter takes advantage of their talent that I have a hard time with. So there's that. And then more recently, there's been the issue in AEW between CM Punk and the elite and not exactly knowing what happened and how much of it is, again, factual or fictional. That is causing me to have a lot of pause at this point. Do you ever notice any of them get political? Like I would hopefully hope that none of them really try and get political on things sometimes i just like i don't like celebrities getting political on anything um i just stick to you know the thing we don't need you to step into this field as well too and i know some people feel like they have a message to give out there same thing with podcasts as well too i don't really like getting into the whole political and trying to give that's why i tell people just like the dude abides you know you're gonna choose whatever you want on some things but to me, it's just sometimes you see it everywhere. And it, now that I'm starting to realize there's kind of notes of the political stuff in the WWE type and professional wrestling. It kind of, I'm probably not going to be able to unsee that, but it makes a lot more sense. But just making an open political statement, even the military thing, I mean, I get it. It's a quick way to get fans and get a bunch of Americans on your side. But at the same time, I don't want to see that cross into this dimension. To me, this seems like a parallel universe. We should just not have that involvement of anything from modern text. I actually have a paper coming out with my partner where we looked at after the George George Floyd murder, how WWE wrestlers responded and looking at 
the discourse around Black Lives Matters as they were talking about it, because in particular, Randy Orton kind of shocked everyone by tweeting Black Lives Matters because he thought his fans thought that he was more one way. So we've looked at that and we've looked at it in terms of, again, how authentic is it? Is this actually representing their true beliefs, their authentic beliefs? Is it kind of, you know, just going along with this overall discourse of acceptance of social justice? How much of it is is based on what WWE wants them to be saying and doing? So it's it's an interesting question about how much of what we see in terms of politics being expressed by professional wrestlers is authentic. Randy Orton's such a nice guy. I just got to (laughs) say, I don't, I don't know why people, I guess his character is a little bit one way, but I saw him. He did not look like Randy Orton. I would have not recognized him. I just kind of looked at him, did like a double take. And I'm like, Randy Orton, he was in the off, I guess the off uh, show vacation, dad bod style stuff that you normally don't see because i think he flaunts his abs a lot but you look i looked at him i was like okay hold on i gotta ask i just gotta it's gonna be i'm gonna be that guy now i usually get tom holland people usually say but i'm I'm gonna walk up to this guy and ask him and he was it was randy orton he asked for it to get some good crabs and i was like it's over that way man i was like i get your autograph he's like no and then walked away i was like damn nobody's gonna believe this we gotta get a picture um but yeah, I mean, even with, I guess I didn't realize how complex professional wrestling really was when you boil it down from just the act in general, you kind of look at, I mean, the the fans, I mean, what about advertising? Do you notice that's taking over the market a little bit too much? I, I don't watch, I haven't watched WrestleMania in several years now, but I was following this past year's WrestleMania. Um, and I was surprised at how much mascots and brands came into actual WrestleMania. I was just shocked by that Um, because, I mean, there's always been sponsorships and stuff as far as I've been watching, but to actually have the mascots involved essentially in wrestling matches and storylines, I found fascinating. Um, Beyond that, I mean, it's like anything else. It's going to be a capitalist program. You have to make money, you have to make profit. And I would just hope that as much as possible, any promoter is, putting that profit and that revenue back into the promotion and particularly into the wrestlers who are oftentimes independent contractors who need the money to at least take care of their medical bills. So I would hope that's where advertising revenue is going is to helping the wrestlers. I just got one last question for you, but when it comes to Vince McMahon, besides the COVID stuff, I mean, do you think that it's going to really shock or change the industry a lot when he gives up at like 145? Um, no, because I think I would have thought he was gone for good when he retired this time, essentially last year. But now that he's back and they've made the deal with UFC and they're this new company. I think the bigger impact is going to be to see what Dana White and the UFC has on the WWE. Um, I think when McMahon does finally leave, whether it's retiring or just death, I think that's going to be more of the impact than his leaving. Well, Carrie, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show again. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. I'm sure we'll have a round three at some point. Um, but I have a rubber is, match. <laughs> but uh, where can people find your links, Carrie? 
Um, so I'm on Twitter, uh, CD Reinhard. I'm at the PWSA, which is prowrestlingstudies.org. And then I also have my own website, which is Playing With Research. And I'm going to link all those links in the description for people to be able to click. And thanks again for the time. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.